thank you so much for joining us for this virtual event. We are here today to present a new book on the repercussions and policy lessons learned from COVID-19. Hard to believe it's now been two years, more than two years that we have been uh, living with uh, COVID-19. Um, we're very keen to hear from you throughout this uh, seminar. So please submit your questions. Uh, we'll get to the Q&A session after the final speaker. You can submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIFPRI on Twitter. It's now my pleasure to turn uh, over to Jo Swinnen. Uh, he is the Global Director of the Systems Transformation Science Group within CGIR, as well as the Director General of IFPRI. Thanks for being with us this morning, Jo. Thanks very much, Charlotte. Um, welcome, everybody. Today is 7 March, and uh, it was two, two years and one week ago that I took, uh, for the last time, a plane until quite recently. Um, and uh, so that was on the last day of February in 2020. Ten days later, the IFRI offices closed down, as did many offices around the world in response to the spreading pandemic. By the end of March already, we had our first webinar on the impact of uh, COVID-19 on global food security. And early April, we had launched a blog series, uh, bringing together research, emerging insights, etc., going forward. And five months later, early August 2020, we published our first ebook. Looking back, actually, it's quite incredible that this was possible. I think it was only possible within an organization such as IFPRI and the associated research between whom we collaborate. It's a combination of great research insights, great research minds, uh, strong uh, capacity there, the network that we have, excellent support staff and communication for all the webinars that we organized and for the blogs and then for the ebook, the first one and the second one. Now, of course, COVID-19 did not stop in August 2020. It is still here. Our research has also not stopped. We still continue to work on it, getting better data, better conceptual frameworks, better insights uh, on the impact of the pandemic, and also more understanding of what's in the medium run the impact. Uh, today, we have, um, we are unfortunately in a crisis again, another type of crisis, but we believe, and as you will hear today, a lot of the work on COVID-19 is about resilience of our food systems. And this, of course, is relevant for the crisis we are unfortunately finish, uh, facing today again. I have, we have a stellar lineup of speakers. I am not gonna use more time. I'm really happy to pass the floor to, to John McDermott. John has shown great leadership over the past two years in our work here both in, in supervising, guiding the work of so many researchers, but also in taking the leadership on the CGIR COVID-19 hub, which he has really helped to establish and to lead throughout the past uh, two years. And of course, as a lead editor of this second ebook, over to you, John. So yes, let me go through a kind of overview of the book. Next slide. Um, why this book and why now? Well, a, a lot has changed in two years. The first book, as Yo described, we got some initial impacts and responses. Most of those were by the end of June 2020. But information was relatively scarce and we were piecing it together. And I think there was also a hope at that time that COVID-19 would be controlled and we would be moving on by now to recovery and building back better. But the experience is that COVID-19 has persisted and is very widespread. 
and the impacts have evolved as well. And these have in some ways exposed gaps and weaknesses that we had going into the pandemic. Some have exposed new gaps or, that we didn't understand, and some have shown new opportunities. And we wanted to take this opportunity of the book to provide evidence and lessons to help policymakers manage COVID-19 better in the longer term as it's persisting. Um, and to combine that in a more systematic way with other challenges they're facing in terms of climate conflict, et cetera. Uh, so next slide. So obviously the evolution of what happens on the impacts side for food uh, depends a lot on what's happened with the virus. And as you can see, there's been a lot of deaths and the official counts actually underestimate by quite a bit the deaths, particularly in Africa. The other feature of COVID is the waves of infection that have, that have come through and made it difficult to manage in many places. And these are often associated with new variants. Now, the good news is that we have effective, vaccine, effective vaccines, and these have been developed and distributed in a kind of an unprecedented speed. Um, and they protect against serious illness, which is a huge accomplishment. But that speed of vaccine distribution and delivery is not everywhere. And you can see that Africa is really lagging, uh, both because of unequal distribution of vaccines, but also over time, we'll see that the weaker health systems there are slowing things down. Next slide. Now, food security and food systems impacts have also involved. And especially in low and middle income countries where initially human contact was really disrupted, it was especially a problem for poor and vulnerable communities. And of course, because of the disruptions of contact, urban populations were severely affected and there was dramatic declines in incomes, which are being adapted for to greater and lesser extents in different places. But rural populations, even though they're less dense, are poor and they've also been badly affected. But the good news, I think, from a kind of food perspective is that food production and supply have been relatively well protected. Um, but with time and you know, with challenges, there's growing concerns for production and supply and increasing prices, which you'll hear about. And next slide. Now, these are challenging times for policymakers, and they really need to raise their game. And they're dealing with complex trade-offs that cut across sectors. There's no doubt that public programs are needed and have been useful. But the success depends on trust and public capacity and building on existing programs which don't exist everywhere. And they need to, as we've said, move on from focusing on COVID-19 to a more systematic approach that deals with other challenges as well. Next slide. So in terms of this ebook, it contains contributions from both IFPRI and its ongoing analysis and the blog series and from the CGR COVID-19 hub. And we've organized the book in four main sections, food security and poverty, ag production and value chains, nutrition, health and social protection, and policy responses and implications. And in each of these sections, there's kind of two contributions. 
Some are uh, more synthesis of lessons we've learned over two years, and other ones are uh, new or updated blogs from the IFPRI blog series that show key points. Uh, next slide. Now I'm gonna present the section on policy responses and implications and some highlights in this section. Um, we provide a nice example of how the CGR COVID-19 hub supported country demands in different countries for, for their priorities. We also provide examples of improving policy implementation, um, looking at how to build trust in science and government, and looking for how to make programs more effective in rural areas. We have a, a synthesis section on fiscal and monetary policies to support public responses and uh, on policy uh, uh, proposals for policy areas of emphasis for smarter food policies. Next slide. Now, in terms of the fiscal and monetary responses in most low and middle income countries, fiscal responses have predominated. Um, and the supports to households and businesses have been very useful in, in, the, in the short term. But uh, there's no question that from, uh, there's no, uh, sorry, there's no clear um, pattern of how countries have responded fiscally and how that's led to different health and economic outcomes. There's just so many other factors in play. In the longer term, it's clear that the fiscal space in low and middle income countries is very limited. And so in the, in the, in the contribution, we look at debt relief, we look at increased investments um, from multilateral development banks, and even the potential for new financial instruments like pandemic bonds. And of course, all of this needs to be backed up by better ability to implement policies and policy actions. Next slide. Now, the lead, the lead uh, contribution in this section really looks at four areas or four policy domains where we give suggestions about how policymakers can have smarter policies. And two of these consider what I would say are kind of ongoing policy gaps and challenges, and two of them consider evolving policy opportunities. And the first one highlights the need for better cross-sectoral coordination, which is very difficult for policymakers. But I'd like to em emphasize from the outset that it's not possible or desirable to coordinate everything. Uh, we need to do this much better, though. And one example that we highlight is obviously pandemic preparedness and response, where we need coordination across health, food, environment, and how these infections are very integrated, are, are very uh, integrated into food systems and how food systems are managed. Um, now, there's been ample evidence of the economic costs of pandemics This is well, and, and good plans for how to deal with them, but we've never implemented them in a systematic way. And the responses we've seen in the pandemic have often caused unintended harm, either to poor people or to small businesses, as you're going to hear later. So that's the first kind of areas is on coordination. Uh, next slide. The other one is I, I think uh, we have consistently shown that the pandemics exposed gaps in our uh, support to poor and vulnerable populations. And in many ways, responses have exacerbated inequalities. They've been gender blind, et cetera. And we need to be much more comprehensive and systematic about 
improving our support to poor and vulnerable populations. Now, I think there's two pieces of good news um, in this kind of overall um, support. Um, and that is, we have shown that social protection programs can work, but it really needs to be much more comprehensive. And Nihal will discuss this more. Next slide. Now, um, in terms of um, opportunities, I think we have an opportunity by embracing food systems approaches to be much more systematic. And the two pieces of good news in that are one that really food systems approaches have been embraced at kind of global, regional, and national levels over the past two years, uh, particularly in the UN Food System Summit. And we can capitalize on the country-owned and led plans for food system pathways and how to invest in their food system transformations. I think the other piece of good news is that there's been a lot of private sector innovation. It's been really impressive, now mostly by larger and more capable firms. Um, and so that's going to be a challenge in low and middle income countries where most food is delivered by small and medium enterprises. But there's been great digital innovations and there's been smarter bundling of technology with institutional changes and other tweaks, uh, which are very important and which we provide a lot of examples. Now, finally, um, smarter policies in the last slide um, will um, depend on better information. We provide an example showing how the CGR and multiple partners have responded to demands from the government of Bangladesh to help them monitor and assess their food systems responses um, in a more timely and spatially explicit facts, um, manner. And um, we emphasize the importance of really supporting national data agencies and policy analysts uh, to embrace food systems approaches and objectives to expand their skills there, both in the traditional outcome areas of food systems, health, sustainability, and inclusion, but also adding resilience and efficiency to those considerations. And we've elaborated that much more in IFPRI's 2021 global food policy response. So Charlotte, um, over to you. Thank you so much, John. Let me echo Yo's uh, remarks. At, uh, John has been the mastermind of this book of the COVID-19 hub and really the, the, the last few years of his in, in within the CGAR system have been really devoted to getting information out about COVID. So I'd like to also thank you for, for your tremendous work on this. Thank you for highlighting some of the key findings um, uh, on the policy side. We're now moving into a set of uh, rapid fire presentations, which will look at the other sections in this book, in particular, nutrition, health, and social programs, uh, agricultural production and value chains, and food security and poverty. Our first uh, rapid fire comes from Nea Kumar. She's a senior research fellow at IFPRI. And uh, Nea will talk to us today about uh, some of the findings on the nutrition, health, social protection program side. Over to you, Nea, thank you. Thanks, Charlotte. Um, so this section of the book presents new evidence on how people around the world are doing in terms of access to food, nutritious food, health and nutrition services, uh, school closures, and the role social protection programs have played. Uh, these studies help us in identifying the most vulnerable populations, uh, the long-lasting effect the pandemic can have, and how social programs can be adopted 
or, or sorry, adapted for better coverage and more meaningful benefits. Uh, COVID-19's impact on nutrition cannot be emphasized enough. The economic crisis led to income losses, which in turn led to um, you know, poor diets. Uh, some we present here some projections using moderate a moderate scenario and which finds that it can uh, lead to increase of 9.3 million children wasted which is uh, children who are thin for their height an increase of 2.6 million stun children stunted uh, who are thin for their age 168,000 ch child deaths it's also predicted that 2.1 mil more million women uh, will be will be suffering from anemia, and all of this will lead to twenty nine billion dollars in future productivity losses, mostly concentrated in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And this is triggered not only by supply side factors owing to lockdowns and uh, services being diverted to COVID, but also demand side factors such as households uh, being reluctant to use these services from the fear of getting in, getting infection. Next slide, please. Uh, school closures across the world will affect more than just schooling outcomes. So even as lockdowns were lifted, schools remain closed, and that coupled with unequal access to remote learning options, it will lead to wider gaps, wider uh, gaps in learning. It will lead to long-term impacts on lifetime earnings, dropouts among the most vulnerable. Uh, also, you know. Poorer, poorer, house, poorer households and girls are more likely to drop out. And there is potential exposure to, to domestic violence. School closures have also impacted uh, food security due to disruptions in food, food uh, school feeding programs. Um, and these impacts are too um, uneven. So where poorer households and uh, single mothers are more likely to be affected by this. Next slide, please. Social protection programs, as uh, John mentioned, have been instrumental in COVID relief response. These programs have been leveraged to provide and continue support. However, it has not always been smooth. So for example, while it was possible to expedite payments, it was not as straightforward to increase entitlements or coverage. Um, there is no doubt that increasing payment amounts is better for the most vulnerable. And good for us that evidence supports that so increasing uh, transfer amounts can trigger uh, greater gdp growth and in countries such as ethiopia where national safety net programs have been operating over a decade where systems are in place we find that transfers virtually um, offset all of the adverse effects on uh, of the pandemic on these households next slide please but social uh, safety nets target the poorest. And in crises such as these, even the non-poor can fall into poverty. So we need to design programs that are flexible uh, with the ability to increase coverage and entitlements. Uh, safeguarding and promoting access to nutritious food is also key, uh, which can be done by making social protection programs more nutrition sensitive. Um, and last but not the least, uh, we must invest in so maternal and child nutrition outcomes. They are important in their own right, but they also have long-term uh, implications. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Nia. Those are staggering estimates that you put up and um, you, you highlighted the role of social protection, but also the need to do social protection uh, better in the future. And I think the key takeaway from your presentation is, is the, the potentially very long-term implications uh, of, of COVID-19 that will be with us for, for years to come. Our next rapid fire comes from uh, Professor Tom Reardon. He's the University Distinguished Professor at Michigan State University, and as of uh, recently, also a non-resident senior research fellow at IFPRI. Tom, you're going to speak to us today about the stresses uh, caused by COVID-19 within value chains, but also about some of the innovations that we've seen in, in the value chains. Over to you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Let's set the context. Before COVID, for decades, food supply chains have been buffeted by recurring crises in developing countries. They've been harassed and constrained by high transaction costs and high risks, by climate shocks, by conflicts, by crop, animal, and human diseases. And yet, what we've seen over those decades is that over and over again, the food supply chains bounce back. And this is what we saw during COVID. Before COVID for three decades, food supply chains grew rapidly, dynamically. In Africa, 800%. In Asia, 1,000%. Before COVID, food supply chains grew to feed 80% of all of the consumption of food in developing countries, which is also the share of purchases in total consumption, with the remaining 20% being subsistence. So we had dynamic growth and success of food supply chains writ large in developing countries. Before decade, before COVID for decades, millions of small enterprises made massive private investments. Large enterprises made massive private investments. Governments themselves grandly invested in wholesale markets and in roads. So this was the stage that was set before COVID. Then in early 2020, COVID struck. Food supply chains were battered once again. To limit disease spread, governments instituted lockdowns. To save money because uh, they lost jobs or they wanted to hunker down, consumers reduced food demand. To expose themselves less to the disease, many workers went home and stayed home. So this is the battering that the food supply chains took in that first half of 2020. As a result of that battering, uh, Downstream firms, for example, restaurants and retail, were deprived of in-person customers. Midstream firms, like wholesale and processing and logistics, were constrained in their movement. They were deprived of labor. They were deprived of inputs. Upstream firms, like farms and input dealers, were deprived of imported inputs and of labor. This is a real battering. And with that, there was a seesaw of prices that firms faced and consumers faced. With the cost surges, prices surged. With the demand constraints, prices fell. So there was a seesaw in prices. Now, just like before COVID, in the second half of the 2020 year and into 2021, we saw that food supply chains largely bounced back. I say largely because it wasn't complete the success. The blood of the food supply chain started to flow again. This is the blood is the third party logistics, the truckers, 
the wholesalers. This is what makes the system move. That's the center of the whole system. And then labor started to flow again, raising workers' incomes and, of course, their food demand. Imported inputs started to flow again. Consumers reemerged from their houses and started to go to restaurants and retail shops. So you had a rebirth of the food supply chains right after the COVID shock. And what really fascinated us in our research, and Yo pointed this out at the beginning, is that food supply chains were largely resilient to this shock. They largely weathered the shock. We explored how they survived. We looked at the resilient strategies they used. Some small firms simply hunkered down during the lockdowns. They reduced activity. They waited it out. But many firms adjusted and pivoted to the new rules. They started, for example, going to wholesale markets earlier or later in the day to get around restrictions. Many firms diversified their sourcing okay, or substituted to new inputs into local labor. Often their ability to do that substitution had, were muscles built up by being shocked over several decades before. Really interesting case of South African citrus, for example. And very interesting is that many enterprises, not just large, but also small, digitalized their businesses. They shifted, they pivoted into e-commerce and delivery. There was a surge of delivery intermediaries, for example, Swiggy in India that serviced 40,000 small restaurants during this time to deliver food. But not all of this was success. Not all of this uh, escaped challenge. Many small enterprises uh, were resilient. Okay, so it's not a picture of the small dropped out and the big one. Many small enterprises re were resilient, but not all. Some that had too little savings, too few assets, or too little flexibility to pivot either went out of business or uh, struggled to recover and finally recovered. Also, food supply chains overall bounced back, okay, but so did prices, especially international prices and in the products that are imported, like grains. As demand bounced back also, there was a strain, especially on international commerce, of shipping and ports and container supplies to be able to, to, to supply this, this renewed system and that had a backlog of demand. And of course, as we know, it's not over. COVID shock came and now here comes the battering again. Climate shocks, international conflict. So again, the resilient strategies and the muscles built up during COVID and before need to be reflexed. Build back better to us, I think in the message of the book is invest in the fundamentals, the roads, the wholesale markets, the, the ability to, uh, to be resilient and invest in good policy that's flexible and allows risks to be reduced and transaction costs to be reduced. So the millions of small entrepreneurs and large entrepreneurs in developing countries can again exercise their resilience muscles. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tom, for so vividly painting a picture of, uh, of, of value chains throughout the COVID uh, uh, period and indicating that the muscles that have been built up are going to be sorely needed uh, also moving into the future. Our last uh, rapid fire comes from James Thurlow, who's a senior research fellow at IFPRI, and James will discuss the impacts of uh, COVID-19 on food systems, poverty, and diets. 
Thanks, Charlotte. So, um, so I think if we, if we cast our minds back to the early 2020, to the beginning of the pandemic, you'll remember it was a time when we were suddenly inundated by, by models, by epidemiological models telling us that we needed to, to bend the curve and the, the social distancing policies that were needed uh, to, to achieve that. At the same time, back in early 2020, IFPRI's own modelers mobilized um, to, to, and used their global and national models to try and estimate what, what we thought the impacts of COVID-19 might be on national economies, on food systems, on poverty and diets, and, and so on. And, and this was very much in demand. At that time, history wasn't a very good guide for us. This was an unprecedented moment, an unprecedented shock. And so we needed our models to help us piece through what the um, or estimate what we thought the, uh, the immediate and long-term impacts of COVID might be and how that might shift our policy priorities over time. And so at, at IFPRI, we worked together with local researchers and government officials to, to piece together sector by sector, policy by policy, what we thought the, the economy-wide impacts of, of COVID might be. And so I think now that we're two years down the road, um, and, uh, and, and I think it's an opportune moment. The book is very opportune to give us a chance to, to stop and reflect on what it is that we got wrong and, and what it is we got right. Next slide, please. So in our, in my, in our chapter, my, my co-author and I, Carl Poe, um, we, we, we list a very detailed set of reflections on, on what we got wrong. And I'm, I'm just gonna just focus in on one. And I think the, most, the, the, most, the, the biggest thing that we got wrong was that, we, that the impacts that we were initially estimating back in early 2020, how bad was COVID going to be for the economy? Our initial estimates were perhaps larger. Um, than actually turned out to be the case in many countries, right? You can see on the left-hand side here for the three countries we're focusing on today that our simulated impacts, a decline in GDP relative to the baseline, our simulated impacts in blue were substantially larger than what actually turned out to be reported in official statistics looking back from 2020 back at, uh, in 2021, looking back at 2020. And so the question is why? Why did we get this wrong? Why were we so pessimistic? And I think we've covered some of the reasons Tom and Neha have mentioned and John. Um, the first, as Tom mentioned very clearly, is that people and firms tended, out, tended to adapt much better than we originally thought. Our models were built on supply chains as they were configured leading into COVID and, and they adjusted quite well during, during, the, um, during the pandemic, although it took time. The stories of trucks lined up outside of cities unable to get in, those stories were headlines in the early days. But, but they declined over time and, and became less frequent. As Niha said, you know, governments introduced very important mitigating policies. Almost every country in the world introduced a social protection program. Um, and most countries also provided working capital. It didn't always reach the, the, the informal or the small, the small firms, as Tom has talked about. But governments were generally quite quick and, and had quite large scale programs where they could afford it. Another area, and this is not to pass the buck, but in our modeling, we were drawing on analysis and projections from others. And it turned out that those global shocks that places like the World Bank, the OECD and elsewhere were, were predicting, particularly in terms of foreign direct investment collapses and declines in remittances, those early projections turned out to also be more severe than, than, um, than actually turned out to be the case. So for example, 20% declines in, in remittances and FDI were projected for developing countries. It was half that in Africa. And in fact, FDI and remittances increased in, in Asia. So, so that's part of the reason why collectively we, we got things wrong. 
So I think if there are two lessons we're going to draw from this, the first is somewhat self-serving, and that is we definitely need to invest in our foresight tools and data and in the partnerships in country, so that our partners who can use these tools with us to, to evaluate uh, impacts of things like COVID and climate and all the other shocks that Tom has talked about. But I think we also need to be honest and, and say that while there was a lot of attention given to these models early on, they were they're not perfect foresight tools. They're just opportunities for experimenting and learning. Next slide, please. What did we get right? And I think the big thing here, and Tom has talked about it a lot, is that, um, is that the agri-food systems and agriculture in particular turned out to be a, a very important safety net. Our modeling showed that agri-food systems, while, while, while negatively affected, were far more resilient than other parts of the economy. And as a result, rural households and also poor households were less exposed to their shocks than, say, their urban counterparts and so on. And so, um, and so I think to some extent, while we need to draw attention to those big numbers that Niha um, mentioned in her, in her rapid fire presentation, we also need to talk up the importance of agriculture as a safety net, how it became a refuge for many of the displaced and the unemployed during COVID. That said, we, we, there's still a lot of uncertainty about the longer term implications. On the bottom right hand side, you can see um, some of our projections for poverty. And you can see that we are still quite pessimistic. It's going to take time for us to recoup some of the, the years of growth that we have lost. I think the clear message is, as, as, John, as, um, as Tom has said and John has said, we need to continue to invest in agriculture, not just in the short term social protection programs, but in agriculture as a national safety net. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, James. Some very important takeaways uh, uh, from you. Before we move to our uh, three discussants, um, let me remind all of you that we're coming soon to the Q&A session. So please do submit your brief questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. Our first discussant is Suda Narayanan. Um, she is also a research fellow at IFPRI. And, and Suda, thank you for being with us today. You're going to address uh, not an easy task for all of South, uh, sorry, on a, on a global, uh, for South Asia, the, the impacts of the epidemic in, in that region. Yeah, uh, thank you very much, Charlotte. I'd like to begin by congratulating the team that's put together this beautifully produced volume. I think it's timely, uh, necessary and valuable uh, to revisit where countries are with uh, the COVID-19 fallout. Uh, I want to bring together uh, five points, five issues that uh, seem to stand out from a South Asia perspective. Um, and I think some of them reinforce what other speakers have said before me. Others uh, sort of are qualifiers. Uh, and I want to point out that uh, I'm uh, uh, the, the perspective I take is that our uh, research agenda around COVID impacts is still unfinished, and we need to pursue these uh, further uh, in the next couple of years. Uh, so the first point I want to make is uh, th that these challenges are continuing. Uh, I want to draw on our research in Bangladesh's uh, agri-food supply chains. We looked at fish and shrimp, and we found uh, strangely that although uh, most studies had suggested a strong recovery and resilience, six months after the crisis, our surveys one year after the crisis suggest that a lot of uh, midstream actors actually closed at that time, suggesting that there's some kind of sleeper effect. Yes, people are able to hunker down and hold their breath, but how long can they do it? So this kind of sleeper effect is something that we need to continue to track and see how the churning in the midstream actors happens. Uh, the second is the demand recovery. 
Uh, I think if you go commodity-wise, some commodities have seen a stronger recovery and other food commodities have not seen such a strong recovery. And in fact, ongoing uh, research work from India's peri-urban areas, farmers are suggesting that this year uh, prices for horticulture crops have just not increased and they attribute it to a decline in demand. And so this continuing challenges is something that we need to keep on the radar. And it's linked to my second point, which is on the macroeconomic dilemmas. So countries seem to wait, uh, the South Asian countries in particular, uh, need, they know they need to spend to uh, stimulate demand. And that would in turn improve the investment climate. But at the same time, because the economy has taken a hit, there are very few sources of uh, revenue. Uh, so I want to bring the example of India here, where this idea that uh, should we wait, how do we stimulate consumption and provide a good investment climate? Now, it's chosen to rely on fuel taxes, which in turn uh, increases the costs and has led to inflation today, uh, well after a year of, after the crisis. So there are some unintended consequences of trying to getting the macro policy right that I think is useful to keep in mind. My third point is on policy misadventures. I think many countries in South Asia uh, try to use COVID as a crisis to fix the structural problems, um, regulation and so on. So a, a striking example is of Sri Lanka, which kind of banned imported chemical fertilizers and pesticides and forced 2 million farmers to convert to organic, which backfired. And in the Indian case, it's uh, farm laws, which were not uh, this was not particularly an opportune time to introduce very serious structural reform. And so I would call, classify these as policy misadventures and governments should have in fact been focusing on something more fundamental and humanitarian. Uh, my fourth point is on missed opportunities. I think Neha um, uh, pointed out, uh, we all thought when COVID hits, all the South Asian countries would have this new awakening to the dismal state of health infrastructure. And strangely, that's not happened. I think uh, the current focus is largely on recovery and investment, ease of doing business. But I don't think there's as much conversation on what on the investments that need to go into health infrastructure in particular. Uh, and, the la uh, and the fourth point uh, I have to make is on the political economy of policy making. Even the COVID response, I think a lot of the uh, uh, questions we had was who's making these policies? Who's being consulted? And it's not very clear that it's uh, the right experts for giving in inputs to uh, in terms of COVID policy response. I myself have participated in uh, government consultations. I like to think I'm the right person to be consulted, but there was also a disproportionate pro uh, share of large businesses representing agribusiness interests and so on. And uh, 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 related to that is this idea that who benefits from these policies? Uh, and in my own view, uh, both in Bangladesh and India, we've seen that large agribusinesses fared much better, but not because they were more efficient, but because they had a year of the government and could get privileges that others were unable to do so. Um, so that would be the political economy of policymaking, and we need to understand those processes much better. And my last point is uh, looking at uh, the responsibility of researchers. Reviewing all the work that's come out of South Asia, it's not very balanced at all. In fact, we know very little about Pakistan, for instance, um, and thematic uh, th themes. Uh, the, I've already discussed the understudied themes. 
but it also seems to translate into how some regions have a lot of research coming out and others very little. Um, and I think we need to focus a little more on uh, as researchers to uh, cover these research gaps. So I will end with that and thank you for the opportunity for uh, this uh, conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Suda. You raise a number of really important points that I'm sure are going to be taken up in our in our Q&A session. Next, we move to Africa. Uh, I'm delighted that Jemima Njuki is with us today. She is, as of, uh, I think, just last week, the Chief of the Women's Economic Empowerment at UN Women. And prior to that, of course, she was IFPRI's Africa Director. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Jemima. Uh, you also have a difficult task. What are some of the key, key impacts and developments for that uh, small region of Africa? <laughs> I know. Thank you very much a lot. And so excited to 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 join you this morning. Um, I think let me, let me just start by, you know, focusing on a couple of points about some of the differential impacts that we saw of the pandemic in in Africa and what are some of the evolving issues that I think um, we, we can learn from um, from this book. Um, one is we saw sort of lower um, health impacts from COVID-19 in, um, in Africa. Deaths have been much lower than in other parts of the world. The current tracker we have now that I think the last update was uh, in December of 2021, showing just about 150,000 uh, deaths and about 6 million, um, 6 million cases. So much lower impacts than we've seen in other parts of the, of the world. But even with that lower numbers, what we've actually seen is a huge impact on the health system. And I think moving forward, that's going to be a challenge for the continent in terms of rebuilding some of the other um, health programs that have actually either fallen off the, the radar or slowed down as a result of the response to COVID-19. So we've seen challenges, for example, that have, and I think that are going to have some long-term impact in, term, in terms of disruptions in things like child immunizations, disruptions in our HIV programs, malaria and, 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 and TB programs, just because of health systems being really, um, really overwhelmed. Uh, but what we also saw was some unexpectedly quick responses from um, from 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 governments um, in terms of even continental organizing around. Um, you know the Africa CDC. Um, use of, of digital tools. We had countries like Rwanda, countries like Ghana really deploying digital tools to make sure that uh, drugs, uh, testing kits that actually reached um, rural areas and, and, and other populations that were hard to, to reach. Um, but the biggest impacts actually were around uh, the economic impacts, you know, disruptions in trade, you know, drops in, in global demand uh, for some of the resource products that come out of Africa, whether those are agriculture products, horticulture products, and other natural, um, natural resource products from, um, from the region. But 
one other big impact was actually disruptions on some sectors that play such important roles in uh, countries, economies, and GDPs like tourism. So we saw huge drops in, in tourism in countries that depend on, on tourism. We saw huge drops in, in remittances just because there were disruptions in employment um, for, uh, and especially for countries where uh, there's a lot of dependency on, um, on, on remittances, countries like Somalia and, um, and others. But this then had some impacts on, on, on poverty, on, on food security. We saw school closures. Um, and so even though the health impacts weren't as, uh, as, as huge in terms of numbers, we did see you know, a repercussion of these impacts in other ways, both on the health system, but also on the, um, on the, on the economy. Um, so to, to maybe three things that I think are going to be really important uh, moving forward. One is um, some of the economic responses around either economic stimulus or social protection. We saw an expansion in that. And I think the big question that remains, and that's also an issue for both research and cooperation, is to see how much of these economic stimulus packages and, and expanded social protection is going to remain moving forward because the, the impacts on job losses, the impacts on food insecurity, those are going to be felt for much longer than just this short-term recovery uh, period. Um, I think it was James that mentioned, that mentioned the role of agriculture as a social safety net. And what we started experiencing, at least from an antidote perspective, is what um, people were calling reverse migration, where before migration was from rural areas to urban areas. And we started hearing of reverse migration flow and I think for research, from a research perspective, that will be an in interesting phenomenon to track and see the extent to which that was at a, at a scale um, that has an impact on agriculture or the extent to which that was temporary. And now we're going to start seeing migration back into, into urban areas. And the third thing that I think is really critical for research is we saw more impact in the informal sector, informal wage workers, women who are working in the informal um, economy and the extent to which the recovery, that sector is recovering. I'm not sure there's enough research or the extent to which um, there are actually long-term strategies to ensure recovery of the of the informal sector. So hoping to see this, you know, sort of more research going into, um, into that. Uh, back to you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jemima. Um, we're now moving to Latin America and the Caribbean. Valeria Pinheiro, uh, a senior research coordinator at IFPRI, is going to discuss uh, some of the impacts and developments in that part of the world. Over to you, Valeria. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Charlotte, very much um, uh, for introduction. And I would like to just start congratulating the whole team for this, putting together this book in such a short timing and in a timely wise. So today I'm just going to, to concentrate in Latin America and the Caribbean. and. Um, I would like to start first with the impact of actually uh, COVID-19 that happened in the uh, region and really give some, some direction of why we think that, that it was uh, hit so hard at the very beginning of the pandemic. So the region 
is home of 8% of the global population, but about like 30% of all COVID-19 deaths came from this uh, region. So some of the characteristics that may explain why it has been particularly vulnerable to the pandemic is that 80% of the population live in urban areas. Uh, roughly half of employment is in informal activities. The rates of overweight and obesity are among the highest as well in the world. And last, the health system have suffered because of the region's economic stagnations in the previous decade. Um, so the governments have reacted very differently um, in diverse um, policies as well, depending on the country. Um, so we went from strong lockdowns in countries such as in Argentina, Chile, and Peru um, to just live really um, um, uninterrupted in Brazil and Mexico. Also, the stimulus packages were very different. In Brazil, Peru, and Chile, they spent around 5% of GDP through fiscal uh, measures, but Mexico and Uruguay only spent like 1% of their GDP. In 2021, the region experienced higher than expected growth, actually averaged 6% due to the low baseline, first of all, that was coming up from uh, 2020, but also to graded mobility. And that is the uh, uh, graph that it shows in this slide, um, as well as medical advances in controlling the virus, the fiscal and monetary expansion, and to also a favorable external context as well. So it's not only from the region, from the outside as well. However, obviously, tourism and services are still down. So regions like the Caribbean and Central America are still very strongly affected by this. Post-pandemic, the region will need to expand support for long-term transformation from the Latin American countries, the food system, sorry, and redesign safety nets to address both the lingering impacts of the crisis, but also some of the vulnerabilities that really underlie these impacts. However, we're not there yet. Uh, COVID-19 has magnified some structural gaps in equality, limited fiscal space, that it was also mentioned previously by all the um, other speakers, low productivity, informality and fragmented social protections and health systems. Moreover, the pandemic has led to almost 11% increase in unemployment, 54 uh, increase in informal labor, and the closure is almost 3 million uh, small and medium enterprises. Of course, that in 2022, this number had been um, decreasing, so it's getting better. But as I've seen, um, the, these kind of impacts will affect in the long term as well. So next slide, please. We have been hearing, I will move a little bit, but trade um, will affect Latin America in particular as well. So we've been hearing for the last two years that COVID-19 has underlined the importance of the robust, efficient, and resilient agri-food system uh, to feed the world with a nutritious and diverse uh, diet. And actually, I've already mentioned this uh, earlier today. Um, so here is one of the conclusions from actually the first book of this series that still applies, Trade Matters. By moving, by moving food from surpluses to deficit of um, regions and countries, trade can address production shortfalls, stabilize markets, reduce prices to consumers, increase the diversity of available foods, and influence also the preferences and, and diets. So as expected, the crisis has triggered a wave of inflation, um, and that's the, the, uh, the graph in this slide. And again, the use of export restrictions have been implemented. Uh, lately in the last uh, couple of weeks to cut local inflation reality, like in Argentina and Indonesia. 
It's important to note uh, one of the findings that actually come from the book that income loss and supply disruptions have also affected dietary choices, increasing global malnutrition. Low, and, um, low income and lower middle income households have switched from cheaper and less nutritious foods and reduced their consumption of the perishable foods, such as fruits and vegetables. In turn, also these shifts have limited the dietary diversity and increased the risk of negative health consequences, as it was mentioned. In a study that we did with um, Eugenio Diaz-Bonilla and David Laborde for Latin America, we found that the pandemic during 2020 was estimated to increase the number of people not affording a healthy diet by almost 37 million people, reaching more than 144. With the economic recovery, the number of people unable to afford the healthy diet declined, but still in 2022, there are still 7 million people more than in 2019 that cannot afford the healthy diet. Uh, next slide. Unfortunately, today we have to worry and plan not only for dealing with the remaining of the COVID effects, but also crisis and climate change. So, for example, for the last days we have been following uh, the ongoing Ukraine uh, what's going on in Ukraine right now. Um, I'm just going to mention just one little thing about food security lens. So if increases this conflict, it's increasing the oil and wheat prices, but the impact is definitely weighted on that. So as just an illustration, I put this slide uh, that shows the uh, share of Russian and Belarus fertilizers in the world market. And it's just to give you a flavor that this will affect also production in many other countries as well. And with this, what I just wanted to conclude is that, or to say is that we do have to have a proactive, um, and this kind of publication helps in putting together uh, the mitigation adaptation strategies that we need to be able to uh, face current and upcoming uh, challenges. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Valeria, also for linking us to, to the new crisis that is uh, before all of us now. Um, before we move to the last speaker, let me remind all of you again, please do submit your questions. We've got uh, lots coming in already, but we want to hear from all of you. You can do that on ifpri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpri on Twitter. Um, so last but not least, we're really pleased that, that Chris Hilbrunner can be with us today. Uh, he is the Division Chief of Analysis and Learning Office of Policy Analysis and Engagement Bureau for Resilience and Food Security at USAID. Uh, Chris, thanks for being with us. Uh, the question that you're going to be speaking to is, is how have some of the key findings from the research, uh, some of which we've heard today, uh, about the fallout from this pandemic in low and middle income countries helped to shape uh, USAID's thinking on, on your own policies. So thanks to my fellow presenters, um, very happy to be here. And uh, as some of my colleagues have also done, I'd like to start with a really heartfelt kudos to the many IFPRI researchers who've contributed to the book. Uh, I think the breadth and the depth of the work that's reflected here is really impressive and has really helped influence the way we think about the pandemic and its impacts. So over the next few minutes, I'd like to touch on two sets of reflections. Uh, first, I'd like to highlight some of the insights from the research reflected in this book that have shaped our understanding of COVID-19 and the ways uh, in particular that it's affected household well-being. And then second, I'd like to build off some of the discussion here to pose two uh, broad questions for moving forward. Uh, 
Um, so to begin, here are five key findings that I think have really resonated and shaped discussions within the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security. And again, I think many of these um, emphasize some of the points that have been touched on earlier. So the first is that the impacts of the pandemic on poverty, hunger, and malnutrition have been large and are likely to persist. Uh, these impacts aren't a bump in the road, but something we're going to have to be managing uh, over an extended period of time, especially in developing countries and amongst more marginalized populations. Um, I'd also highlight, and uh, this has been mentioned earlier, is that these impacts um, beyond increases in extreme poverty or increases in um, access to an adequate quantity of food also include important declines in the quality of household diets. And this is an issue that we believe continues to receive inadequate attention. The second key finding is that um, impacts could have been worse and that one of the things that really helped to mitigate some of our earliest concerns was the sharing of information. So things like IFPRI's export restriction tracker and efforts to really connect that information and analysis to decision makers helped to drive better policy and better outcomes for people. And so really um, keeping in mind that information sharing and decision support function and the positive outcomes that it helped to underpin. Um, third, that despite what was often, uh, particularly in the initial phases of the pandemic, a heavy focus on urban areas, uh, the way much of the research from IFPRI helped us to understand the important impacts that were happening in rural areas, including the idea that on average, the largest increases in extreme poverty uh, were in these, these uh, parts of the countries we were interested in. And then finally, that despite um, initial concerns about steep production declines and widespread failure of agribusinesses, that the global food system um, largely worked in providing uh, food to populations. And the, the range of efforts that are reflected in this book, uh, including the country and global modeling efforts, um, the research on innovations in supply chains and the country case studies have all helped to illuminate the impressive resilience of food systems in the face of the pandemic. Um, obviously, uh, despite these many insights, I think as one of my colleagues mentioned earlier, there's still many questions that remain. And there's two in particular that I know we're grappling with that I'd like to, to put to, to this panel and to this audience. One is um, returning to the discussion of policy responses that John covered earlier. I'd be interested in more of a discussion of what more we should be doing to mitigate the significant impacts of the pandemic on household well-being. Uh, we know that in the absence of further action, these impacts are likely to persist. Uh, in this book, um, Laborde, Martin, and Voss estimate that even in 2030, there will be 95 million more extremely poor people than in the absence of the pandemic. So while safety nets and other social protection efforts have been critical, what else needs to be done to mitigate these impacts, especially given the very real fiscal constraints faced by national governments and donors? And then second, uh, building on the speaker who came right before me, while food systems have demonstrated a remarkable resilience in the face of the pandemic, other shocks loom large. 
So in a context of already elevated global food prices, uh, the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine is expected to have a significant impact on both global food trade and agricultural input supply. So how concerned should we be about the weight of these issues on a food system that's already under stress? And how much can we rely on the resilience that we've seen in the food system over recent years to continue? So again, thank you very much for the opportunity to join this discussion and let me hand the virtual microphone back to Charlotte. Thank you very much, Chris. Those are two very good questions and we'll cover them in our uh, Q&A session, which we're now moving into. Um, let's kick off um, with sort of a, a, a question of the health uh, implications here. So, and, and also a trajectory looking forward. John, you, you highlighted some of the really devastating uh, uh, impacts in terms of you know, deaths around the world. Uh, you also pointed to the lagging vaccination rates in, in some parts of the world. Uh, could you give us your best sense of where we're headed? I mean, some, some parts of the world seem to be thinking we're already in a post-COVID world, but that is certainly not yet, uh, I think, uh, concluded and, and certainly not for some regions in the world. So let's just hear from you about what you think is the, the future of, of COVID-19 and, and how we'll see that playing out. Yeah, thanks. Um, and, um, you know, it's hard to be authoritative about what the future of this is gonna look like. There's gonna be more twists and turns. So I think that I would just start off by saying that, that that's the case. Um, you know, one thing that strikes me is that and it goes back to this coordination issue and the cross-sectoral thing, is that we really have to be smarter, especially in the low and middle income countries who are facing all kinds of challenges of what the trade-offs are between what we do on the health side to control things and what we do in other sectors um, in terms of limiting human interaction, in terms of social protection and all those things. So I think a, a key issue is these trade-offs and how to kind of manage things across sector and as I pointed out before, we can't manage it all, but let's look at the context in the countries and, and even subnational levels and the communities we're working with to get that right. Um, and you know, Jemima's right in a sense that the, the health impacts in Africa were much less than we expected. Um, and in a lot of countries, it's not their biggest issue. And so they're dealing with all kinds of other things. And so we have to remember that. Um, on the other hand, um, I think there's a lot more of a health impact than is probably reported in Africa. Um, if you look at um, the kind of unexplained deaths that occurred in Africa, there, you know, there's probably something like four or five times underreporting of official COVID deaths in Africa. So, so, so there's a bit of an information gap there too. But um, and obviously vaccination offers an opportunity, but that's that goes with kind of weak health systems. So. I guess one of my pleas on the health side is that there's a lot of context involved and we really need to empower country decision makers, but also the people that work with communities. I mean, if we've learned anything in epidemic diseases over the years, and especially from HIV and things like that is, a lot of the issues are social. A lot of the issues are behavioral. And so you can't just come in with regulations that come out in a certain way, and there'll be all kinds of unintended harms that people won't think about. So we need a lot of flexibility in this, and I think Neha kind of pointed to that as well. So the, those are just a few reflections, Charlotte. 
Great. Uh, th thanks, John. Um, Suda, let me come to you next. Uh, you had a nice term, uh, policy misadventures, and <laughs> you, you spoke about the ban on the, on the mineral fertilizers in Sri Lanka and also some of the, uh, the attempts to rewrite some of the, the, the farm laws in, in India. Maybe, you know, don't go into too much detail, but, but do you think it was just a question of poor timing, or do you think that those were just got off to a wrong start, regardless of COVID. What, what's the link to COVID uh, in, in your description of these two policy misadventures? Sorry, uh, I think the, my perspective, uh, and I could be wrong here, but it's just that uh, COVID meant that uh, the usual democratic discussions and uh, consultations, they were all focused on the epidemic itself and the management of that epidemic and uh, the fact that there were movement restrictions meant in a democracy protests are less likely to happen gatherings can be prevented and so on so in a way i think that was one part of what was driving uh, countries to push through some reforms uh, and they felt that there wouldn't be much of a pushback uh, but i think it also speaks to this larger uh, 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 change in the way governments are making policy, which is less consultative, uh, more top-down and so on. That's certainly true of India. I know less about the policy-making processes. Um, so were these bad ideas? Uh, possibly, but you're not given a chance to express that through consultations. Um, and so maybe they were bad anyway to start with, but the fact that it's implemented in COVID means uh, there's that much less discussion consultation so I think it's more of a processual issue than actually what it intended to do. Uh, and I think the process is what did not happen and it should have happened, which would then tell us whether it was a good policy to implement or bad. So it was a misadventure because it chose this as an opportune moment to push something that in other circumstances or normal circumstances may never have seen the light of day. Okay, very interesting. Uh, thank you, Suda. Uh, th that triggers a, a number of questions that I'm going to direct to to Tom Reardon. So Suda made the point that uh, at least in, in, in South Asia, it appears that some of the consultations the government undertook uh, maybe benefited some players in the value chain first. Do you think that is an experience that was seen in other regions as well, Tom? And, and then Cecilia Gonzalez is asking, um, regarding some of the research gaps and who the policies benefit, um, what do you think is IFPRI's role in benefit in particular small and medium enterprises, which do make up such a huge part of the, you know, provide such a huge part of uh, food supply around the world? Can I start? Yeah. Yes, this is uh, really good questions. <clears throat> I won't speak so much to who was consulted as to whom who was understood. And uh, what you know, when you think about uh, basic facts like 80% of food consumption in these regions is purchased. So the extreme importance of keeping the food supply chains moving. When you think about the fact that 80% in South Asia and Africa of those food supply chains are small and medium enterprises, then you know, the importance of keeping them functioning is, 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 is important. And going into COVID, what we observed is that a lot of governments 
had the view that there was a missing middle, that the small enterprises were stuck in the mud, were traditional, were stagnant. And actually they had been dynamic, they were moving, they were getting ready to be resilient. And so when governments came to the table with COVID shock, sometimes it wasn't necessarily who were they listening to, but who did they think should have a voice or was acting, was a major actor. And so I'm thinking of the Nigeria case with the work with Sawida Liverpool Tassia that we cite in the book. You know, the the Nigerian government uh, had declared as non-essential crucial transport logistic services. And partly that was because it wasn't well known in the policy debate that 75% of the maize in Nigeria goes by third party logistic services. Who would have known that the truckers were the centerpiece? And so they were, their, their movement was limited or stopped and that crushed some of the supply chains, not because people were ready. Then in various places, South Africa, Nigeria, where the government realized, oh, this is actually very important and they declared as essential those services, things started flowing very quickly again. So a crucial thing is this research that we do, this nerdy research of, far, of food, of farm surveys and midstream, as James was saying, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, these, these surveys to understand what's going on seems beside the point. You say, why are you figuring out what's going on? Very often it's because governments have a view that's 20, 30 years out of date. And they're acting on that and doing the wrong policy things when push comes to shove. Getting that information about what's the reality right now really is crucial to be able to orient the policy debate. This is what James Thurlow had said about, you know, we're often missing stuff in understanding what the food systems are doing. Re, you know, Reinvesting in that kind of research to understand that basic stuff allows the, 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 the policymakers to respond well in crises. Thank you. Thanks very much, Tom. Naya, let me um, address one of the two questions that Chris posed uh, to you. So, so he was asking about what else needs to be done um, in order to, um, to, 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 to address some of the difficulties at the household level, right? And, and, and he put a special spotlight here on some of the in, incredible fiscal um, expenses that, that we've seen in countries, so which limit uh, moving forward what can be done. So would you like to take a stab at that, uh, at that question? Sure, it's, it's not an easy question to answer, but I'll try. Um, so I'll take an example, which is actually presented in the book where in Bangladesh, uh, the, there's a food friendly program which delivers rice rations to households. And so during the pandemic, what they did was they increased the allocation. So with, so given that they did that, that means the physical means were there, right? But in the survey, recent survey that colleagues at IFPRI did, we found that people didn't actually receive these extra rations. So it's, it's, so the political will was there. The resources were there, but it's but still the rations didn't reach the people. And so it's important to make sure that the monitoring systems are in place, it's functioning properly, and there's some sort of a check which can happen as we are doing it, not six months down the line when we when a research firm decides let's do a survey and see did the ration uh, make a difference or not. So I think that's an important 
thing uh, to to have uh, to keep in mind as as we go forward. Let's keep make sure that the the monitoring systems are in place so we can you can it can trigger. Um, something that says, well, we said we'll do this, but it didn't actually happen. What's going on? Let's look into that. Thanks, Nia. Um, James, um, a question from Yasmin Sadat is, is asking uh, the concern for increased sustainability of the food supplies on the mind of many. Any lessons from your recent research on this topic? You spoke a lot, of course, on, on the impact uh, on, on, on poverty, on diets. What about the sustainability question? No, I think I think that's also, a, a, it's a new topic that I think we need to um, pay a lot more attention to. And I think it speaks to some of these trade-offs between a more vibrant, fast-growing agri-food system and one that is more sustainable over time and has a smaller footprint on the environment. And I think that comes back to, to some extent, that bigger question that Chris asked us, which is, you know, sort of how have, what, 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 need, what needs to be done now? What more needs to be done now um, to, to try and balance all of these different trade-offs? How have those trade-offs and priorities shifted? And I think, um, you know, uh, Chris raised this issue of having 90 million more poor people in the world um, as, a, as a result of, of COVID. And I think that's relative to a no COVID baseline that we, and in my mind, we have lost a couple of years of growth, maybe two or even three going forward. We might not recover and we may never be able to get time back again. And so we will continue to be above, you know, poverty will always be higher than perhaps we would have been had we not lost two years of income growth uh, globally. And so for me, I was thinking, you know, along the same lines of, of what Tom was saying, you know, we need more attention paid to markets, we need more um, access to finance and working capital for small and medium enterprises and so on. But I think the bigger pick, uh, to come back to Chris's point, and this speaks to the environmental considerations as well, we need to go back to that hard work of encouraging governments to, to, to have the tools for, for governments and, and investors to have the tools to prioritize between different investment options and to have the capacity to implement the policy priorities that, that we think are, are or that they think are particularly important that they discover through research are important and then to have as as uh, Sutia was talking about you know to be able to navigate the political economy of the food system this is the long-term investment the muscles that Tom was talking about that we need within policy processes in developing countries and I think that's still the priority that hasn't changed we've lost time but I'm not sure the fundamental priorities have shifted for the food system although taking environmental considerations into account may sort of temper uh, some of the um, sort of fast growth goals that we've had or poverty driven goals that we've had in the past. Thanks. Thanks, James. Um, Valeria, you, you raised uh, some linkages between uh, the, the COVID crisis with what, what is coming uh, our way with potential or already sanctions that have been imposed and, 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 and other trade matters. So there's a question here from an anonymous um, questioner who's wondering, going forward, what matters most, global food security or local food security? Do you, do you think that these uh, consecutive crises are going to shift us more towards a, a local um, food security emphasis? Thank you, Charles, and thank you for, for the question, which is not, not an easy one either. Uh, and I think that it really links with the previous question uh, to talk about uh, the environmental part of it. So I always feel that what we really need to always keep in mind is that we need to talk about sustainability and sustainability in the broader way. Um, so all these questions that relate with, well, it will be global, it will be local, what do we do? We need to keep in mind that big objective when we think about these things. So when um, 
you were talking just about environmental sustainability. There are countries that are have more natural resources and that they are more keen to be producing in a sustainable way of some kind of commodities, what other regions in the world have not. So trade plays a crucial role in really bringing that food to places. So when we're talking about food security, uh, clearly some countries uh, will also depend on imports just because their own capacities cannot really get you to do the, all the local production. But there are some other things that can be done locally that, that will help. So for example, I don't know, producing lettuce, Many countries can produce lettuce, and maybe it is a better idea to heat it pro, um, locally. But if you're talking about, I don't know, bananas, for example, clearly that is not going to be something that every country will be able to produce locally as well. So I think that really it's a, it's a complex answer. But again, if we're really going to think about what's the future, we always have to think the objective of sustainability. So when you're designing the policies and again, export restrictions, import tariffs or all those things uh, that countries do, obviously if we will have a free world which things will move freely, we will be more efficient thinking it in a global way. Um, so um, I think that, that that's going to be the, the answer for that. Thank you. Thanks, Valeria. Um, Jemima, there's a question from Nigeria from Professor um, Olufumi Olatoye, um, and it's a rather specific question about a particular value chain, um, uh, poultry in Nigeria, where uh, the pandemic, as well as other challenges, have disrupted the production and supply chain. Um, and how can those losses be redeemed? Now, you may not be familiar with the, with the poultry supply chain uh, in Nigeria, but maybe you could speak more generally about, uh, about supply chains in Africa in answering that question. How do we redeem losses uh, um, that, that have occurred from some of the just uh, interruptions and disruptions? Thanks very much, uh, Charlotte. And, and yeah, it's not just the poultry value chains, but other value chains as well. And especially those value chains that were dependent on, um, on global um, export, um, export markets. So some of the early closures did affect movement of goods and, and services, especially across borders. But we're also starting to see some recovery um, in some of those value chains um, as uh, some of the closures then got relaxed. But as Jim says, I think it's going to take time uh, to see full, um, full recovery. What we saw in Africa is um, initially a lot of the countries, including agriculture and the movement of inputs uh, and, and input supplies as essential commodities that were not under restrictions. So we did see uh, you know, much less disruptions than would have actually happened if there was a blanket uh, restriction on agricultural um, supplies. But it's going to take some time for, for some of that production to stabilize. Um, some value chains also are very dependent on what Tom is calling the small and medium, um, medium enterprises that had losses of income, that are struggling to rebuild, that weren't always reached by the, uh, a lot of the government uh, economic stimulus, uh, stimulus packages. So we're seeing as a, a slow recovery, but I, I guess it's also a, a steady one as, um, 
as, as, as some of those restrictions uh, lift. Thanks, Jemima. Um, I'm happy to say that Tom Reardon has worked on the poultry um, supply chain in Nigeria. So over to you, Tom. Thank you. I want to echo some of what uh, Dr. Njuki said. And I've worked with Sawida Liverpool Tassier on this, uh, on the poultry supply chain in, in uh, Nigeria. And one thing that was so striking is that before COVID, there was tremendous dynamism of the local supply chain. Many women, for example, in northern Nigeria got involved in producing chicken, selling to the local cities and towns. And wholesale markets, road access was crucial to that. And uh, many of the chicken producers are using feed. Even small enterprises are um, you know, using feed and buying feed. And again, that's going to be very dependent on the flow of the feed and the maize for the feed through these long supply chains that are dependent again on third party logistics and wholesale markets. And that's one thing I wanted to echo from what James said that, uh, you know, you, you um, and what this Suda's uh, point was fantastic about India. She said, well, there was a, and in South Asia in general, there was a new policy on this, a new policy on this, a new policy on another thing, and then a promise about wholesale markets and road infrastructure. The promise was the one that's been left dangling and the policies have been rolled out. And so in some way, I've seen this also in, in Africa that uh, the, 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 the discussion about the centrality of roads and the centrality of wholesale markets went sleepy time for several decades. I found in so many governments that people said, what are you talking about? wholesale market policy. What, what are you talking about this investment? They fell between the cracks. It wasn't national policy. The municipalities haven't already invested, but they weren't coming back to it. And so now the centrality of the blood and bones of the, of the food system, the roads, the wholesale markets has to come up center, uh, central, and that'll allow flexibility and capacity and the foundation for many of these other responses that we're looking for and many other complementary policies to be successful and sustainable. Thank you. Great. Uh, thank you very much, um, Tom. Um, let me ask whether any of you would like to make any additional points in response to the question that Chris asked about how do we make sure that we move into future crises or the new existing crises, um, safeguarding resilience. Anybody would like to take a stab at that? Valeria has already spoken about sort of some of the trade measures that ideally we should avoid. Um, John, I see your hand going up. Yeah, I think it because of the complexity, I think we need to take a bit more systematic approach to resilience. Um, and it, I mean, I think Chris, the two issues that Chris raised are both interlinked. And I was going to take the perspective more about the first one, which was the household well-being, um, because I think there's the kind of two things exposed. So one is um, I made a point earlier about the basic needs. I mean, people need food, they need water, they need health care, they need income, and we need kind of poor people need organizations that can help them navigate things to, to help empower women. There's all kinds of things we understand. So, so that kind of more systematic approach is useful and sometimes it has to be community led or more territorial or things like that so i think that's that's one approach the 
the other thing on resilience is, as Tom pointed out, especially for low and middle income countries that we're focusing on, um, that um, we talk about informal markets and all these things, but it's re they're really markets. I and it's hard sometimes to decide what's informal and what isn't informal and stuff like that. But we really need to look at the context of the marketing, the, the food safety, the infection risks, and then how they relate to people's livelihoods. And we often you see in these pandemics very draconian responses to, I mean, and proposals for kind of completely banning wildlife in quite poor areas of Africa, for example, wildlife. And, and those things just aren't going to work unless you're engaging communities and kind of adjusting the situation and moving forward. So I think these agency issues and the institutional issues need to be combined with some of the other things. And that it's worked for a lot of on the health side, on the food side, on other things. And, and that's what I wanted to say. Great. Thanks. Thanks very much, John. Um, let me now uh, wrap up the, the Q&A session. And um, we're uh, going to hear some closing remarks from, from Yo Swinnon again. And Yo, I, I, I think you probably will also maybe reply to uh, Chris's very good question about uh, future shocks. Yes, uh, thanks Charlotte and thanks to everybody here on, on the panel today. I mean, this was a, an extremely rich uh, discussion because also it's a rich source of material that is uh, in the book and that has been presented. I think the presentations were excellent in a very short uh, amount of time, uh, time uh, pointing out some key issues. I think the, the whole issue also the questions on, okay, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? And why did we get it wrong? And sometimes why did we get it right? Um, is, is extremely important for us to go forward. Let me start maybe by on, on the resilience issue that Chris brought up and where Sean uh, responded to already. I think when we think about resilience, what we've learned, we have to think about resilience in, 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 in different, in dealing with resilience in a number of, of groups of actions, if you want, okay? So the one is prevention of uh, trying to prevent the shock from occurring. Okay, now that sounds like a bit of a weird thing to say, but for example, climate change, we know, right? We, we can do things, there is the risk of, of the, whatever is caused by climate change. And so we can try to prevent this as much as possible by mitigation actions right now. And you can extend that to a, a number of shocks, I think. So that's the first group of things one needs to do. The second one is information. If people are uh, better prepared about what is coming, uh, more precisely informed, et cetera, then they can anticipate, okay, the shock that is coming. And that makes the impact of the shocks hopefully less. And the third one is prepare them. Prepare them that if the shocks hit them, they are already there. For example, insurance is a crucial element there. Finance plays an important role um, and a number of other policy as well, okay? So we have to see this as a, as a set of action that need to um, be implemented at, at different levels. Let me then go back on a number of, of reflections of what we heard today. I think one of the things which we saw from the very beginning and which has persisted throughout the past two years is the uneven impact of, of COVID-19 across social groups, across societies, across the world. Really. Some people have actually done quite well under, uh, under COVID-19. Others have suffered tremendously. And we've seen, if you look at the inequality across the world, but also within smaller communities, the impact is really very different. The second one, uh, my second point is, um, is picking up what John has emphasized in the slides and the summary and then in our discussions, it's about smarter policies, okay? 
And that I think it's a really nice way of framing these things. What have we learned? What can we do better? But it's also a very complex uh, issue, of course. I mean, he emphasized that we need to take a food systems perspective, that that is crucial. Um, but that also means, and I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I've made the same point as well over the past two years. But the point also means there's a lot of interaction between these policies that are going on. For example, the health policies, for example, the lockdown, which are then affecting our economy, etc. So it's a complicated uh, business to be in. And that also means that our and analytical frameworks need to just need to become more complex to deal with uh, these things. So a lot of work for us going forward, I think. In the uh, point I've written down here, which clearly relates to the resilience question there, um, <clears throat> food safety programs. I mean, that's something which has come out to a lot of our research by various uh, groups of research and analysts as well. They have played a really important role in preventing some of the worst effects and also they're crucial, I think, in, implement, in being implemented, expanded, being improved, uh, going forward to deal with uh, future shocks. Uh, fourth point I have here is on the financial side. I mean, finance comes up regularly. It comes up at the macro level, comes up at the micro level. It's something which everybody seems to agree this is important, but we, I think we can do better on that. We can do better work on how does finance work, the role it plays, and how we can mobilize the new financial resources or financial resources differently in uh, doing better for our work on repurposing our subsidies fits in there, but it's much broader than that. And uh, sort of the finance for food system transformation discussions, there, there's a lot of work to be done, I think. This also links to a point which was made both by Jemima and Suda on the attention to the health system infrastructure. Both have said that we hope that this, uh, or we are disappointed in the case, I think that Suda said, that the attention there has not stayed uh, beyond the, the initial effects and that attention has now shifted to different government priorities. But this is crucial as investment areas for the future. A point which has come back through the whole set of presentation, I think, is, the, is our underestimation ex ante of the responsiveness, both of the public and the private sector during COVID-19. I think that's a really important lesson for us to go forward. I mean, Tom has made this point very early on, but also on the government side, it's not only on the private side, but also on the government side, the, the rapid response in some areas. And again, governments could have done better, but at the same time, I mean, they have been remarkably responsive in a number of ways as well. Um, I really like James's presentation of what we got right and what we got wrong on the modeling side. There's more of that if you look at the chapter by Rob Foss and David Laborde and Will Martin has a similar discussion of that on, on the global modeling aspects. The, dif the regional differences, the, the, the differences in the regional impacts, I mean, Jemima explains for Africa, Latin America, Valeria, which came afterwards. I mean, it's striking, strikingly different effects in those things. That's really important for us to take forward as well and to uh, understand and therefore draw uh, policy implications. And then on this, the, the role of agriculture. Okay, this is something which several of people have made. I remember very much that early on, I had a blog where I was arguing that COVID-19 was having very unequal effect and it was the poor who were suffering most. And that John, James commented and he said, well, yo, you have to be careful, okay, what you say with the poor, because if you look at um, across the value chain from the urban poor as consumers to the rural poor, most of them are found that the effects are very different. And so it's a bit more qualified than, than the, the general point. And I think it's been uh, 
clear. I mean, a lot of the data that has come out has confirmed that that early analysis that James and his team have brought forward. So important there as well. And the issue of, of seeing agriculture as a social safety net from that perspective as well. The political economy, I think, clearly is playing an important role in various ways. The role that COVID-19 is playing in shifting our thinking, shifting the global policy debate has been crucial, I think. On the other hand, and this goes back to a point that Jemima made, I think, as well, will it last? Okay, it's still there in the dark, but will it actually have an impact on action in the long and medium run? I'm going to end by two points. One is on, on our own, um, the implications for our own work. I haven't heard anybody say your work is done. It's mostly about, well, we need better data, we need more information, we need better models, and we need to integrate health perspectives, resilience perspectives, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of work for us to do uh, go forward. I do want to recommend those, everybody on the on the uh, on the call here, on the meeting, to do look at the at the book, okay? Because there's a lot of things in the book which has not been presented yet, so a lot more information there. And let me end just by a big word of thanks for everybody who's contributed in terms of analysis, in terms of their writing, and also certainly our our CPA team uh, in terms of putting this together, the event together, the many events we've organized, but also the book, and particularly Pamela and our team have done a heroic job in basically getting even the very last minute submissions into a beautiful publication as we have it today. And my final word is again, thanks to John, you, you are our famous, uh, your, uh, yeah, our favorite epidemiologist. And after two years, I think I can pr pronounce the word properly now. So with that, back to you, Charlotte. Thank you so much, Yo. Thank you to all the speakers and to all the authors of the different chapters of this book for the very important information you provide. Um, also terrific that the COVID-19 hub of the CGIR has, in addition to putting out these research findings, has really engaged with countries and has been responsive uh, to the needs of the countries. So really important work being done to support um, policy decisions. Um, we would love to see many of you back uh, at the same time as we started today's seminar on, on Wednesday. We are uh, having an event on global commodity prices and food security, navigating new challenges and learning from the past. This is the first uh, IFPRI policy seminar in a series on food and fertilizer price trends impacts on global food security. Um, as, as many of you know, of course, and we've discussed it uh, today, food prices have already been rising throughout 2021 and recent developments in Ukraine um, are only going to uh, impact that further. So please do join us on Wednesday. Many thanks again to all of you and to our audience for your active participation, all your questions, and many thanks also to the CPA team for putting on this event. Have a great rest of your day or evening, wherever you may be.